0: All right, as we continue this morning in our series out of the Gospel of Matthew, looking once again in chapter 2 and verses 1 through 12, really 1 through 6 is our focus passage this morning, 2 Kings, the Tender and the Troubled, part 3. And we're just going to jump directly in for the sake of time this morning in Matthew chapter 1 chapter 2 and verses 1 through 3 it is written that now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king behold wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying where is he who has been born king of the Jews for we saw his star when it rose and we have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. Here in Jerusalem arrive wise men, coming far from the east, seeking the newborn king of the Jews. They are stargazers. According to their name in the Greek, they are sorcerers. They are wise men indeed, but not by virtue of their title nor of their doctrine. Instead, they are wise by virtue of their character and the deeds that will come forth from it. For when God revealed himself to them, they acted accordingly, and they did some very, very hard things. When a holy God reveals himself to mortal men, whether you're from the east or from the west or from flyover in between, when a holy God reveals himself to mortal men, mortal men are troubled. They are stirred through. They are stormed tossed. Such is the case with everyone we see who encounters a holy God. Just here in the opening verses of the gospel, we see wise men so troubled as to travel all the way across Asia, so troubled that they would defy the wishes of a mad and murderous king. We see that king, Herod, troubled to a murderous rampage against even the most innocent. We see Mary troubled at Gabriel's greeting, even when the greeting was that she was favored by God, and that the Lord was with her. Being troubled by God is a heavy and many-faceted thing. Wouldn't you agree? Being troubled by God is, brings about so many questions and possibilities, hopes and doubts, dreams and fears... What of the Messiah? I mean, here you have an angel standing before you proclaiming that the Messiah is to come. Here, Herod has these wise men from halfway around the globe coming seeking, not just based off a hunch, but off what they've observed with their own eyes and with their own mind. What of the Messiah? If you're Mary and Joseph, you have to ask yourself, what of the Messiah and what of him concerning Herod? What will he do in the face of arrival? And forget about Herod. What if this thing gains steam? What of the Romans? What about the Jews in the society in which they live? Will we be ostracized? What do you do with the Messiah in chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Matthew? What if we believe that he is the Messiah, but then he turns out not to be? What then? Or worse yet, what if we do not believe he is the Messiah, and it turns out that he is? Such it is to be troubled by God. Questions and possibilities, hopes and doubts, dreams and fears. You see, when it comes to the Messiah, salvation and damnation hang in the balance. And the question is, is how will men respond? How will individual men respond? How will Joseph respond? How will the wise men respond? How will Mary respond? How will Herod respond? And the answer is, is that their response, each and every one, down to the last man, woman, and boy and girl, their response will be determined and hang upon the favor of the Lord God who comes Himself. And so in... Luke chapter 1 in the parallel narrative in verses 30 through 33 and then and again in verse 35 and 37. You'll remember from last week, Gabriel comes to Mary and the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Literally, Yahweh is salvation. He will be great, and He will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to Him the throne of His father David, and He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of His kingdom there will be no end. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God for nothing is impossible with God. Whether you're talking about wise men, whether you're talking about Joseph, whether you're talking about Herod, whether you're talking about Mary, whether you're talking about the young parents that will soon lose their baby boys because of this Messiah, whether you're talking about the merchants in the streets, whether you're talking about you or me. The manner in which that we respond to the troubling of experiencing the manifestation of a holy God falls completely to His favor. For nothing will be impossible with Him. And I have you note that His favor being expressed in the individual will end up determining the collective response of the culture at large. And in this case, when Herod was troubled, all of Jerusalem was troubled with him. We would like to have an idea of the people of Israel, the sons and daughters of Jacob, particularly in this case of the house of judah we would like to have an idea of them in you know, holiness given to them by god searching over the scriptures looking for the coming of the promise of god so that when it was manifest even if the half-breed king that sat over the top of them was troubled unto a murderous rampage they would be troubled unto a glorious confidence, but that is not what we see. Instead, we see a cultural bias against the coming of the Messiah that leads to a conspiracy of omission, where in Matthew chapter 2, verses 3 through 6, they answer the troubled king's question, but trouble his mind with the truth no further. So when King Herod, in verse 3, heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. He did what any good leader does. If you read any kind of leadership manuals, if you want to influence people and win friends, or however the statement goes then what you do is delegate. You don't have to know yourself. Find the guys that know. And so he brings the chief priests and the scribes to him, and he says, where is he to be born? And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet. Quoting Micah, they say, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And we began to look at this last week. And what we noted last week is that of about five stanzas, of about five verses that come out of Micah's prophecy, the scribes and the chief priest quote, one, in isolation oh man people with an agenda love to quote scripture in isolation they they quote one stanza they quote one verse in isolation that answers the king's question where will he be born the answer is that he will be born in bethlehem and then they Conveniently, all together because this isn't just one guy they all together conspire to omit the bulk of the prophecy and they omit the most important part they omit the part not about the coordinates of his birth they omit the part about the fact that who is being born is not simply a man. They omit the deity. They omit telling Herod that the Christ to be born is not simply to be the king of the Jews, but he is the eternal shepherd and the son of the living God. Now, why in the world, if you're a, chief priest or a scribe, would you do that? We find out later in the Gospels, he was a threat to the status quo, to the testimonial system that was going to be in place until his coming and then was going to pass away a system of which they were head, both politically inherited and Religiously, with the priest and the scribes. You see, when one finally arrives at the reality that casts a shadow, the shadow ceases to be. You may be familiar with what I'm referencing there. The book of Hebrews tells us that the sacrificial system of the Old Testament with its animal sacrifices and the burning of incense and the table of showbread and the menorah that gave off light inside of the holy place and the Ark of the Covenant setting in the Holy of Holies and the priests that would go in and offer daily sacrifices for the sins of the people and once a year on the Day of Atonement place the blood on the mercy seat of the Ark, that the priests and the Levites and all that served in this were all but a shadow and a copy Of the actual covenant of God, the actual temple of God, and the actual mercy seat of God, and the actual blood of the Lamb of God Himself that sits in heaven. That that was the reality that was producing your salvation, and this was just an earthly shadow, a copy that was being cast by it, so men could have some grasp of what was going on, and some knowledge of the way that they were actually being saved. And yet, so weighty was this shadow that the entire governance of the nation revolved around it. It had for centuries, for one and a half millennia. And they were the leaders of this shadow. They were the heads of it. It is how they had their place. It's how they made their living. Prestige and power. And just like any object that casts a shadow upon the earth, if you follow the shadow back until you reach the reality that is casting the shadow, at the moment that reality comes, the shadow ceases. If I'm casting a shadow, once you follow it back to you hit my foot, there is no more shadow. There's actual person. They know when the Messiah comes that their place will be lost. This isn't just pop psychology in the rear view mirror. This is what they will say by their own testimony in the Gospel of John in chapter 11 and verses 41 through 48. Immediately following the resurrection of Lazarus. You know the narrative where Jesus knows that Lazarus is sick and it is going to be unto death but not unto permanent death and Jesus tarries for several days and allows Lazarus to die. And then travels to see him. He's been dead for four days. And they say, oh, don't roll back the stone because he's going to smell by now. Jesus simply says, having prayed to the Father, Lazarus, come forth. And a man, four days dead, walks out of the grave. And you would think, you would think, You would suppose, postulate, hypothesize. If you were to witness such a thing, what you would do? But friends, I tell you, what we do is we postulate a good postulate. We hypothesize well. We think of scenarios... Well, if it went like this and if it goes like that, I would do this. Are you sure? Yes, I'm sure. Right up until the moment that it goes that way. And we realize all of the realities and inconvenience and hardships that go with taking a hard stand and we usually find a reason to justify why what's actually occurring is different from the scenario that we set. We'll talk tough. the government ever tells my kids it has to be this way at school I'll be pulling them out of school until it's that way and then pulling them out of school is too inconvenient if they ever tell us as a church we have to do this and not that we're done with it we'll do it anyway until they come down here and threaten to write you a citation it's easy to talk and we would say to ourselves if I saw a dead man get out of the grave what I would do is bow and worship and I bet all of those people would have said the same thing right up until the morning the moment that they actually saw a dead man get out of the grave and now they're troubled what will they do and how will they respond in chapter 11 and verse 41 it says so they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said father I thank you that you have heard me I knew that you always hear me, but I say this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore... Now look, he prayed to the Father, I have said this so that they may believe. The question is, is how are they going to respond to that which they now believe? Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him, But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And so the chief priest and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. And they don't even deny it. It's right in front of them. This man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, Everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. They are troubled. They are stirred through. And at the resurrection of Lazarus, they telegraph their bias of place. You want to know Why They only answered Herod in the most immediate way. It wasn't simply because they were scared of what Herod might do to them physically if they spoke of the king of the Jews being born was actually the son of the living God. They were scared about what it meant for them and their position and their prestige. Friends, it's not just that the Jews, it's not simply the Jews that will have a hard time with Jesus. The question is not, are you troubled by Christ? The question is not whether or not the coming of the Messiah is troublesome to men. The fact of the matter is is that Scripture teaches us that He and His purpose are always troublesome for all men. After all, it is this Christ who would say in Mark chapter 8, verse 34 and 35, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. Now friends, if we hold to the most simple hermeneutic, and we do, that says that vocabulary and grammar combine in context to convey meaning, if we believe that, which is a fancy way of saying, you know what the Bible means? Exactly what it says. Now, if we believe that, there is no way, even though Christianity has been trying to do it for centuries, if not for millennia, well, I say Christianity, if religious men... And religious institutions, they've been trying to do this for centuries, if not millennia. The reality is, is you cannot take the troublesome nature away from pick up your cross. It is troublesome. It is troublesome for the Lord of glory to look at his people and go, okay, you want to have eternal life, what you're going to have to do is spend this one. You're going to have to die. People say, we got to die to self. but These people didn't... Look, we are so far culturally moved, removed from a crucifixion today. We talk about picking up your cross like it's like, you know, you take a stand on social media and people flame you. You've picked up your cross. I ain't picking up your cross. These people knew what a cross was. It was a death so violent, most of us in the Western world today couldn't even stomach the events that led up to it, much less get to the event itself. This is troublesome. The question is not are you troubled or whether or not the coming of the Messiah is troublesome because he is. The question is, are you troubled by God? Or are you troubled by the circumstances that he ordains? If you're Herod, are you troubled by the fact that the Messiah has come and that his standard is holy and that you're going to fall short? Or or, or are you troubled that... Are you troubled that the throne that you just fought a war to be able to consolidate is now being threatened? If you're the Jews, are you troubled by your circumstance? Are you troubled because for generation after generation after generation, the sons of Aaron have enjoyed a particular place in this society that is about to be replaced by the actual priest? And you're going to have to like go learn a trade and become a baker or a farmer or something or are you troubled because even in your service you have fallen woefully short of the glory of god if you're mary and joseph are you troubled because you're going to have to run to egypt in the middle of the night and you're going to have to bear the guilt of knowing that because your son lived he murdered countless other mother and father's children are you troubled because of that Are you you troubled because you bear in your very arms the Son of the living God? The question is not, are you troubled? The question is, are you troubled by God? Are you simply troubled by the circumstances He ordained? Is He your peace? Or do you simply desire Him to deliver unto you your peace? Do you hear me? Because friend, you're going to be troubled. In this life, Scripture says, in this life there will be trouble. And so, the trouble of circumstance never leaves you. Sometimes it's less, sometimes it's more, sometimes it seems like there's almost none, sometimes it seems very bearable, and other times it seems completely unbearable. What do you see Christ as? Is He your peace? Or do you have an idea of what peace ought to be and you just want him to deliver that to you? The gospel of the Messiah is peace in the midst of ordained trial unto the coming of future perfect and eternal peace apart from trial. I'm going to say that one more time. The gospel of the Messiah is peace in the midst of ordained trial unto the coming of future perfect and eternal peace that is apart from trial. And that is unfortunate. Here's the problem with cutting up scripture is you may think you're avoiding the uncomfortable parts the way the scribes and the Pharisees were we'll talk about the coordinates of his birth but not about the deity that comes along with that but actually what you're doing is you're knocking the very foundation out from under your feet if you're going to be a follower of Jesus Christ you better get down with trouble because in this life as long as this shadow remains there will be which is exactly what the Lord was speaking through the prophet Micah so once again this morning let's do what the scribes and the chief priest wouldn't do and dig into the fullness of what Micah has to say in Micah chapter 5 and verses 1 through 5 now they're going to quote verse 2 you, O Bethlehem. But before you get there, you got to start with verse 1. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. And Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. And then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Micah chapter 5 verses 1 through 5 covers the entirety of redemptive history in just a few breaths. If you look at it from the standpoint of the people that received it upon its writing, that is to say the contemporaries of Micah when he was writing it back in the day, verse 1 will present the present that is immediately at hand. Verse 2 will present the relatively near future of redemption, just seven centuries away. Verse 3. Verse 3 will speak of the far future. A future that is still not yet come to pass some 27 centuries later. And verses 4 and 5 will speak of the eternal state of the people of God under the authority of Jesus Christ. And every single bit of it, whether the present that is at hand, the relatively near future, the far future or eternity, all of it is fixated on the promise of Christ. And so let's break down just for a few minutes this morning. We're not going to take a ton of time to do it. We are going to read quite a bit of scripture. Let's break down for a moment what the scribes and the chief priest refused to consider, lest it would shed light on the fact that they were about to lose their place. For the original audience, in Micah chapter 5, verse 1, the present that was at hand was the coming of Babylon. In chapter 5, verse 1, Now muster your troops, O daughters of troops siege is laid against us and with a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek and the judge of Israel that is being struck here that is spoken of is not Christ you know how we know this because when the day of Christ comes well verse 2 is his birth so that ought to give you a hint but When the day of Christ comes, he will stand before the magistrates, he will stand before the Romans, and say, my kingdom is not of this world. If it was, my men would fight. But because my kingdom is not of this world, they don't. Here, the very first call is a call to muster the troops. What is being spoken of here is the the immediate theme of the book of Micah, that because of the sin of the people and turning away from the Lord their God and seeking after other gods, judgment is coming. And as it was promised through Moses, the judgment to come is a judgment of exile. As was further delineated by Isaiah to Hezekiah, the exile will come at the hands of the Babylonians. And so it is recorded in 2 Kings In chapter 24, you want to talk about trouble of circumstance. In 2 Kings, in chapter 24, in verse 10, you see the record of the fall of Jerusalem. Where the judge of Israel is struck so hard on the cheek that he loses both of his eyes. It says, At that time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up to Jerusalem, and the city was besieged. And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to the city while his servants were besieging it, and Jehoiachin, the king of Judah, gave himself up to the king of Babylon himself and his mother and his servants and his officials and his palace officials. The king of Babylon took him prisoner in the eighth year of his reign and carried off all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house and cut them in pieces, all the vessels of gold in the temple of the Lord, which Solomon, king of Israel, had made as the Lord had foretold. He carried away all Jerusalem and all the officials and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives and all the craftsmen and the smiths, none remained. None remained except the poorest people of the land. And he carried away Jehoiachin to Babylon. The king's mother, the king's wives, his officials, and the chief men of the land he took into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon. Babylon. And the king of Babylon brought captive to Babylon all the men of valor, 7,000, and the craftsmen and the metal workers, 1,000, all of them strong and fit for war. And the king of Babylon made Madaniah, Jehoiachin's uncle, king in his place. And he changed his name to Zedekiah. And Zedekiah, not the king, not really, was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamutal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that Jehoiachin had done. For because of the anger of the Lord, it came to the point in Jerusalem and Judah that he cast them out of his presence. And Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. And these guys can't get enough rebellion. They rebel against God, and they rebel against Nebuchadnezzar. And so, in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came with all his army against Jerusalem, and he laid siege to it. And they built siege works all around it. And so the city was besieged until the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. And on the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. And when the breach was made in the city and all of the men of war fled by night by the way of the gate between the two walls by the king's garden and the Chaldeans were around the city and they went in the direction of the Arabah. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho. And all his army was scattered from him. And then they captured the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon in Riblah. And they passed sentence on him. They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains and took him to Babylon. Because of the sin of the people of Judah in turning away from the Lord their God, The Lord brought the king of Babylon against them as he had foretold. You know why Nebuchadnezzar is casting up siege works around your city? It is not simply because Nebuchadnezzar is a bad guy. It is not simply because you have done wrong and these are the natural consequences of your sin. It is because God said, if you turn from me, I will punish you in this manner. And so there they are. And he carries off the valiant men he carries off the smartest the strongest the craftsman Daniel in their midst he carries off the king and he puts up a puppet king in his place gives him kind of a Jewish kingly sounding name leaves him a shell of a kingdom behind and says you will do my bidding and all will go well and in his arrogance he rebels against him and Nebuchadnezzar says fine I'll take it all and burn what remains and so they set up the siege works and they starve the people until their starvation becomes so great they would rather throw themselves upon the Chaldean sword, they breach the wall and break out in the night and try to escape and are slaughtered in the open land and drags Zedekiah before him. He makes him watch him slaughter his sons and it's the last thing you will ever see. The judge, not the king of Israel, is struck upon the cheek. He put out his eyes and the last thing he ever sees is the torment of his boys. But Nebuchadnezzar's not done. Verse 8, it says, in the fifth month of the seventh day of the month, that was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the king of the bodyguard you just know he's a bad dude you can tell by his name he's what they call a fixer in the business captain of the bodyguard a servant of the king of Babylon came to Jerusalem he burned the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem every great house he burned down and all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem. And the rest of the people who were left in the city and the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon together with the rest of the multitude, Nebu, Zard- Nebu Zar- Zaradan, the captain of the body, easy for you to say, the captain of the bodyguard carried into exile, but the captain of the guard left some of the poorest of the land to be vine dressers and plowmen. And the pillars of bronze that were in the house of the Lord, and the stands and the bronze sea that were in the house of the Lord, the Chaldeans broke in pieces and carried the bronze to Babylon. They took away the pots and the shovels and the snuffers and the dishes for incense and all of the vessels of bronze used in the temple service, the firepans also and the bowls. And what was of gold, the captain of the guard took away as gold, and what was of silver as silver, and for the two pillars, the one C and the one stands that Solomon, Solomon himself, had made for the house of the Lord. The bronze of all these vessels was beyond weight. The height of the one pillar was 18 cubits. And on it was a capital of bronze. The height of the capital was three cubits. A lattice work and pomegranates, all bronze, were all around the capital. And the second pillar had the same with the lattice work. And the captain of the guard took Sariah, the chief priest, and Zephaniah, the second priest, and the three keepers of the threshold. And from the city he took an officer who had been in command of the men of war and five men of the king's council who were found in the city and the secretary of the commander of the army who mustered the people of the land and 60 men of the people of the land who were found in the city. And Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, took them and brought them to the king of Babylon at Riblah. And the king of Babylon struck them down and put them to death at Riblah in the land of Hamath so that Judah was taken into exile out of its land. Do you understand that what happened to them was their current technological and cultural equivalent of getting nuked. They came to Jerusalem. Not only did they take her brightest and her finest, not only did they strip her of the kind of minds and the, the social collective knowledge that forms the basis for a culture, but this is a culture that is completely completely and totally founded and fixated upon a theocracy. God in their midst and they went to the temple and they took everything out of it that was silver. And they didn't take it as it was as the spoils of war back to Babylon. They broke it into pieces to make it easier to pack. They took all of the gold and they broke it all down. Why? Why? Because Nebuchadnezzar doesn't give a rip about any kind of Jewish cultural identity. As a matter of fact, he specifically wants to do away with it. What he's going to do is turn it into whatever suits his fancy. It's all going to be melted down. The very pillars in the bronze sea and the bases and the tables that Solomon himself oversaw the engineering of beaten apart with hammers and taken away the temple itself burned the walls broken down the gates ripped from their post and the priests and the kingly lineages put to death in their world Jerusalem just got nuked and that's problematic Because in Deuteronomy chapter 12, in verses 1 through 7, the Lord had told him this, These are the statutes and the rules that you shall be careful to do in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. You shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods, on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their Asherim with fire. You shall chop down their carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, but you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. And there you shall go, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes, and your contribution that you present, your vow offerings, your free will offerings, your firstborn of your herd and of your flock, and there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice you and your households and all that you undertake in which the Lord your God has blessed you the Lord says when you enter the land this is what it's going to look like you're going to destroy the pillars and the altars of all of these demonic pagans and then you're going to wait you're not going to worship like they do you're not going to replace their worship with your own. You're going to destroy it and then you're going to wait and the Lord is going to pick a place from amongst you where He will cause His name and His presence to dwell. And there in that place is where you will have your worship. There in that place is where you will have your covenant. There in that place is where you will have the forgiveness of your sins. There in that place is where you will have your identity. And that place is gone gone in their world Jerusalem just got nuked friends everybody has trouble of circumstance what would you do if Jerusalem actually got nuked today I mean I feel like we at least we've labored to do this we have labored for our people here at Mount Zion to maybe have kind of a fuller grasp of what scripture says about the consummation of the age that you would than you would find maybe you know in your average pew we know that there are things that are necessary for the second coming of Christ to occur and Jerusalem has a lot to do with that if you don't believe it just read the book of Daniel what would you think if, a, if, if, if some broken arrow suitcase nuke that's left over from the old Soviet Union went boom today? Ground zero, the Temple Mount. What would it cause it? A crisis of theology? Crisis of faith? It's what happened for these people. And yet in the midst of all that is wound up in muster your troops for with the rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek, all that's wound up in that in verse 1 is then relieved by a relatively near future hope in verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to... Rule in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. In Matthew, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament text is used, and that is what they quote when they say in verse 6, that in you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people israel now there in matthew chapter 2 they've just been talking about the king that is herod and he is troubled because there is a king that has been born amongst the jews that's obviously not him the word here is basilius and it means simply king or monarch in the new testament it's used for a broad range of characters from herod to pharaoh to david to christ but here in quoting Micah, the New Testament says, For from you shall come a ruler who shall shepherd my people Israel. It's a very different word, it's poinamo, and it means tender. But not tender like, oh, sweetheart, it's okay. Not tender like that. You may be familiar with the Greek word from which it comes, poimen. Means of the pasture, of the field. And so this tender is not one that is tender-hearted per se, even though he often is but he is one who does the tending. For you shall come a ruler who will shepherd, who will tend after my people Israel. Now, sometimes when you look at this concept in the New Testament, it is a eager tending like in 1 Peter where it says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not shameful for gain, but eagerly, and not domineering it over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Sometimes this tending, this shepherding is eagerly and willfully, and sometimes it's severely. As you see in Revelation chapter 2, verse 26, where it says. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end. To him I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them. Literally, he will tend them. He will shepherd them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces. But whether eagerly or severely, either way, the concept is the same. One who is being taken care of, one who is being tended in the midst of the field, Not apart from it, but in the midst of it. And so here you have the kind of overarching view of redemptive history in Micah chapter 5. You see the immediate events that are about to occur, the, the immediate presence where Jerusalem will be destroyed and the people will be carried off into captivity. You see a future hope where there is coming forth one out of Bethlehem who will not only rule but will tend after, will look after and shepherd and care for his people. There is future hope. And yet, the far future, kind of the big picture for Israel, is one of extended trial. Back in Micah in chapter 5, moving on to verse 3. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. And then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. Okay, here we go. Muster your troops because the Babylonians are coming. But that's okay because just about 700 years down the road in Bethlehem, the Christ is coming as well. Therefore, therefore what? Therefore victory and glory, therefore salvation. No, therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. And then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. Now, at this point, I have to caution you. I know this is heavy stuff. Salvation is heavy stuff. At this point in time, I have to caution you don't let your circumstantial bias affect your theology. Don't be like the chief priests and the scribes. Who is giving birth? Who is in labor? It's not Mary. No, Mary was giving birth and in labor back in Bethlehem in verse 2. It's Israel who is in labor. And it is Israel who will be giving birth. And it is a labor and it is a birth that brings about a returning of the people of Israel to Israel. Isaiah speaks about it in chapter 66, verses 6 through 8, the sound of an uproar from the city, a sound from the temple, the sound of the Lord rendering recompense to his enemies. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall a land be born in one day? Shall a nation be brought forth in one moment? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she brought forth her children. It is not Mary who is giving birth in verse 3 of chapter 5 of Micah. She was doing that in verse 2. It is Israel who is laboring it is israel who is giving birth and when she gives birth she will give it in a day and as he told micah this will result in a return of the brothers of the messiah that it will bring them back he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth, and then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. In this day, when the nation of Israel is laboring according to God and gives birth in a day, in that day there will be a returning of people to the land. Isaiah speaks of it in chapter 10, in verse 20 through 23. In Isaiah chapter 10 In verse 20, the Lord speaks. In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. A remnant will return. The remnant of Jacob to the mighty God, for through your people, Israel, that for though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness, for the Lord God of hosts will make a full end, as decreed in the midst of all the earth. Now, I know I'm throwing a lot at you but I need you to put the pieces together with me in your head that the scribes and the Pharisees would have been putting together in theirs 2,000 years ago they know what Micah chapter 5 says they would just rather not have to deal with the uncomfortable nature of the reality you know why? why? because they really don't want the Messiah to be their peace they have an idea what peace looks like and they want him to deliver their version of peace to them and because scripture is screaming that he won't they are troubled and they are not troubled in a good way they have a version of peace they want they want a messiah who at the very least will let them maintain the status quo they said look we've got the romans and they're not ideal but if this guy keeps raising people from the dead the romans are going to come and take away our place and our nation and we don't like the romans but we like this better than no place and no nation So at the very least, we want a peace where the Messiah lets us keep what we have and all he's doing is kicking rocks into our transmission. Furthermore, what we would really like to see is if we might kind of dissect and pull out of context this thing a little bit more, pick all of the second Advent verses that talk about the coming of Christ and the triumph of his glory and a sharp sword coming from his mouth to destroy his enemies. Lord, we want you to define your enemies as our enemies instead of us defining our enemies as your enemies. And so, the Romans are a problem, Herod's a problem, we're looking for a Messiah that at the very least will allow us to maintain the status quo, but preferably would come and throw the Romans off of us, exalt us to the place that we think we deserve to be, and allow us to continue to serve as priests, not just to Israel, but according to the prophecies, indeed, to the whole planet. That's our peace, deliver that to us. You know, man, that's so arrogant. No more arrogant than we are today. Why is it that when troubles come, the default for us is to always pray first what we want Him to do? Why is it that when trouble of circumstance comes, the very first thing we default to is, Lord, make it go away, make it easy, fix it, put it back the way I like it? Instead of saying, Lord, shepherd, tender, how are you tending me? Which way would you have me to go? In what manner should I pick up my cross? Should I pick it up in such a way that it rubs the hide down to the bone off of my right shoulder, or should I pick it up in such a way that it rubs the hide off down to the bone on my left shoulder? When what we almost universally knee jerk to is, Lord, make the cross disappear. if the tender of the sheep says this is the nature of my tending that first the judge of Israel is going to be struck on the cheek and by that I mean I'm going to kill his sons in front of his face and then gouge his eyes out and then that happened and 700 years later you're going to see hope and And that hope's going to come in Bethlehem. But you're not done yet. Because the gospel of the Messiah is not peace on your terms. It's Him being your peace. And He's not done tending His flock yet. And the gospel of the Messiah is going to be ordained. Ordained trial and peace in the midst of it until the day of future and perfect peace apart from trial and that day has not yet come. And so there's there's very real trial that shakes a country to its core. Here is the promise of the Messiah to come in Bethlehem and then there is an extended period of ordained trial, an extended period that will end with a birthing that brings the people of the Lord back but... Guess what? If you're going to be brought back, that means you first have to be scattered. And if they're scattered, they'll lose their place and they'll lose their nation. Daniel told him what it would look like in chapter 9 when he said, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again in a wall, even in troublesome times. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, not for himself and the people of the prince who is to come. That would be the Romans shall destroy the city and the sanctuary and the end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war desolations are determined they know this about the messiah they know that if what you've got is actually the messiah at some point in time he is going to be cut off and when he is cut off the sanctuary and the temple will be destroyed and we're going to find ourselves right back where we were at the Babylonian captivity. They did everything they could to stop it and in trying to stop it, what they did was ensure that it happened. In 70 AD, the Romans made good on God's ordained promise. They wanted his peace to mimic their idea of peace. but he is no puppet. He is no puppet. Friends, his peace is going to be his peace. You know why? Because he deems your peace and my peace not to be nearly peaceful enough for him. Look, Little trinkets, the piece. Lord, give it to me this way. I'm not even near done. I'm not done with these notes, and I cut these notes in half this morning. <laughs> little, little little plastic piece, little toy soldiers, man. If it was just like this and like this and like this and like this and like this, let me tell you, friend. So, why is it this way? Why is it this way that you got kings having their eyes put out? Kids killed in front of them. The temple burned. The glories of Solomon's Jerusalem being drug off to Babylon. Why does it have to be that way? I mean, you could preach sermons after sermons over that. You could preach sermons about the sin of men having natural consequence. You could preach sermons about a holy God having punitive consequence for sin. All of that is true, but if you really want to get down to it, if you just want to get to the brass tacks, because I think if you find yourself in a place where you are troubled by your circumstance instead of being troubled by Christ, this is the answer. If you really want to get right down to it, is why does it have to be like this? If if, if you're asking this about yourself right now, or if you're asking yourself, and hey, I've asked it over the last couple weeks, or if you're, asking your, if you're asking yourself this with a big old fancy high priest robe on in Jerusalem in the first century, why does it have to be like this? Because that's the way that the shepherd tends the flock. And if sheep had a brain in their head sheep had a brain in their head they wouldn't want it any other way that's hard that's scary why wouldn't it be salvation and damnation hang in the balance but I'll skip to the end and we'll come back next week I'll skip to the end and tell you what it looks like and what it looks like is Psalm 23 the Lord is my shepherd I shall not want fair enough he makes me lie down in green pastures he leads me beside still waters he restores my soul and he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake notice the tending of the shepherd the very first thing that the shepherd does that causes his sheep not to want is he makes them do things He doesn't offer it to them. He doesn't say, hey, here's an opportunity to lie down in a green pasture. You know, guys, if you would like, there is alfalfa right over the hill. It's not what he does. It's not the nature of Christ tending. He makes them lie down. Notice that having been made to lie down, they are well led beside still waters. You see, it is the nature of the real sheep of God not to be comforted by a change of circumstance, but instead to be comforted by the presence of the shepherd This is how you know that the scribes and the chief priests are not the sheep of God. Because if they were, even though His presence would trouble their circumstance, they would find peace and comfort in His presence in the midst of their trouble. But they don't. They fight against it. Here's what the sheep and the shepherd look like. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. The worst circumstance you could possibly have. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. And you're my peace. I'm not coming to you with a list. Dictating to you, Lord, this is what peace looks like for me. Provide it. I want it. Instead, Lord, what looks like peace is you. And so you make me lie down and you lead me. And therefore, if I find myself in the valley of death, it's because you've brought me here. I will fear no evil, for you are with me, and your rod and your staff they comfort me. Guys, people go, why? Why do you? Uh, you really seem to enjoy the kind of scriptures where Jesus is just slaying them, where he's just laying them low, man, swinging the sword, destroying the enemies. You really seem to gravitate to those. I do. David did. They were a comfort to him. And the shepherd doesn't have a rod and a staff because he's an old man that needs help over the rocks. He has a rod and a staff to deal with threats to the flock. They comfort him. Man, I get to feeling beat up. I get to feeling down. I like to go read Revelation 19. Set you straight, man. You prepare a table before me. Sweet. In the dining hall? In the banquet hall? No. In the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The gospel of the Messiah is peace in the midst of ordained trial until it leads to a future day of peace that is perfect and eternal and apart from trial. The question is, is not whether or not God will be troubling to you. The question is, do you have your own idea of peace? Or is he your peace? I pray you. Yes.